This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Plato. What makes a good dance song? Even if you don't know the song, of course, it's Let's Dance by David Bowie. You could recognize it as a dance song, right? Something you get up and gets you up and moving, and you know it's a dance song. But cultures all around the world have their own dance songs. But would you be able to recognize them as you did that David Bowie song? In other words, is there something universally true about music or how our brain recognizes music that connects all these dance-type songs? And are we able to pick up on that? That's exactly the question that my guests, my next guests and their team wanted to find out. They took uh, different types of songs from all over the world and played them for people to see what they recognized. People in 60 countries listened to songs from 86 mostly small-scale societies, and their study was published this week in the journal Current Biology. Let me introduce my guests. Excuse me. Samuel Mayer is a research associate in the Department of Psychology and principal investigator of the Music Lab at Harvard University. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi. Thanks for having us. You're welcome. Amanver Singh is a Ph.D. candidate in human evolutionary biology, also at Harvard. Welcome to Science Friday. Yeah, thank you. Hello. Amanver, um, let me ask you first. In this study, you were interested in seeing if listeners were able to match up the form of a song to its function. Can you explain what you what you mean and what you were looking for? Why were you interested in this? Yeah. Um, so what we mean is we were kind of asking, do songs that share social functions around the world, share functions like um, being used to make people to dance or being used to calm fussy infants, heal illness, do they have convergent features? And we were thinking both about the contextual features, so stuff like uh, whether instruments are used or the gender of the singers, but also, very importantly, the musical features. So the melodic complexity, the rhythmic complexity, the tempo, etc. Mm -hmm. And as, as Samuel, for the first part of the study, you used the Internet to play clips to people online to see if they could pick out these types of songs, correct? Yeah, that's right. So we had a, a pretty large collection of songs from all over the world um, as part of the Natural History of Song Discography, which is a project that Manvir and I co-direct with Luke Glowacki. Um, and we took little snippets of each song, 14 seconds apiece, and played them to listeners in 60 different countries all over the world. Um, and the experiment's really simple. Basically, people all over the world listen to each snippet and then ask a uh, answer a series of questions about each of them about what they think the singers are doing. We asked them, do you think the singers are using the song for dancing? Do you think they're using the song uh, to soothe an infant, to heal illness, and so on. All right, let's let's let our listeners in on the fun. We're going to play the songs for them. Let's listen to one form. There are three different dance songs in this one clip. <laughs> Those were, those were dance samples from the Yangu of Australia, the Mentawe of Southeast Asia, and the Hopi of Arizona, correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And how well were listeners able to identify these as dance songs, Samuel? 
Oh, so uh, the the really striking finding, um, especially for dance songs, is that not only are people around the world very accurate at identifying uh, when a song is being used for dancing, they rate it quite highly on this dimension used for dancing, um, but they're also really confident in their ratings. They they rate it you know super high on the scale relative to other songs, and they rate them rate they rate them highly consistently with other listeners around the world. So it doesn't matter if I'm sitting here you know in Cambridge listening to this dance song or you know Manvir's yeah. doing it from Mentawai. We we agree with each other. All right. Let me listen to another form. I'm going to give out uh, three, three more songs. I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to reveal what type it is. So listeners, try to guess what type of songs these are. Yeah. What, what do you think? What kind of songs were they? I'm, time's up. I'm going to tell you. They were lullaby samples from the, Sa, the Sa'ami of Scandinavia, the Nyangatam of East Africa, and the Ainu of uh, East Asia. Uh, does identifying the type of song have to do with the elements of the song? You would think that a lullaby would be right, right quieter, have less singers, Sam or uh, Manvir? Yeah, so what we actually found in a follow-up experiment was that, yeah, listeners do seem to be using the features of the songs to make their rating decisions. And lullabies in particular are defined, seem to be different on all of the features that we examined. So they have slower tempos, they are less melodically and rhythmically complex, they are less happy-sounding, kind of less exciting. Um, And we saw that, that listeners use both these musical features as well as the contextual features, like is there an instrument or mm. uh, is you know the gender of the person singing? So yeah, it seems like they are using those features. Mm-hmm. Uh, Samuel, you're you're a cognitive scientist. Do you think that our brains form to pick up these type of songs for some reason? Well, so I think that's one of the sort of interesting questions that's still open um, that research like this paper helps us to begin to answer. Um, So theories from biological evolutionary work and uh, cultural evolutionary work make different predictions about what we should find in the world when we study music across different cultures. And those theories are testable in these data sets. So two theories are out there about, you know, where dance music might come from, uh, from a biological perspective, and where lullabies might come from, from a biological perspective. And both of those make predictions, not only that dance songs and lullabies should share features across cultures, which is what we find in this paper, mm-hmm. but also that those features should should be shaped by their sort of adaptive function. Um, and those are those are sort of really interesting biological questions that we're going to be able to test as, as more work like this is done. Interesting. Manvir, is there an evolutionary hypothesis to why some of these sounds develop for a particular function? Yeah, yeah. So like Sam is mentioning, there are some people who hypothesize, for example, that music has evolved so that we can dance and we can kind of be a, a more socially cohesive group or that we can dance together and signal to other people that that we are a very formidable group. Alternatively, there are other evolutionary theories that say that lullabies, for example, the singing of lullabies and the uh, listening of lullabies evolved for parents to signal their attention. So these are a body of... Uh, theories that we call adaptive theories. They all say that music making and music listening evolved for adaptive reasons. Interesting. And there are these more byproduct hypotheses that say that, yeah, actually the human mind has evolved uh, 
and and like our auditory capabilities have evolved for completely different reasons and and music has just kind of developed to really hack our psychology in a very gratifying way <laughs> kind of like a drug um yeah. and that that's a byproduct hypothesis yeah. our work can't really discriminate among them but but it at least does show that um that the human mind does seem consistent across societies and how it responds to these different songs. Now, they're, they're, I'm going to play one more group of songs. There was a type of song that people were not good, not as good as identifying. Let me, let's hear an example. Hey, listeners, any idea what type of song that was? Uh, that was a love song, a Rwandan love song from Central Africa. It's a beautiful little song. I love that recording. Yeah, this is one of our favorites. So Manveri and I are smiling and kind of moving around in the studio here. <laughs> well, send us the rest of that one. Any, <laughs> any, any theories on why love songs were so hard to identify for people? Well, so we don't really know, but there there are a few kind of interesting um, ways in which love songs could differ kind of categorically from the other songs that we studied in this paper. Um, the first is just sort of a, a simple explanation, which is just that maybe across cultures, love songs are more ambiguously defined than something as kind of straightforward as a lullaby, where, you know, I think if you asked a lot of people on the Internet, you know, what, what counts as a lullaby, people would kind of converge to mm. things that are soothing for kids and babies and that kind of thing. But love songs are a little harder to find. So maybe maybe the, the sort of ambiguous results just reflect that. I mean, it could also be that love songs are not defined so much or not are not obvious to listeners so much from their musical features, but are more obvious because of other things like the words that are in them. So there was a really interesting sort of secondary finding in our first experiment where we asked listeners how much they thought songs were used to tell a story. None of the songs in the data set were explicitly that kind of storytelling song. But even so, this measure seemed to pick up love songs. So love songs were highly rated as used to tell a story, which suggests that maybe there's something about the words of love songs that you know tell listeners oh this is this is more about love mm-hmm. there has been some pushback to the study that in, in that these songs are all from small-scale societies and you played them for online listeners do you think this skews the interpretation is, is this just what internet users think of these songs well i mean that's a really really good point um yeah, so all of our listeners are people who have access to the internet and people who speak english so i mean one can make this response of oh so it might only be a very, very restricted population that shares these conceptions of what these songs should sound like. Um, And we've taken that criticism seriously, and we are actually expanding our survey to 28 languages. So uh, we're translating it, for example, into Indonesian and Urdu and uh, Amharic. Um, But then we're also taking it to the field. So uh, we're taking it to, for example, Bolivia or Indonesia, and we're we have plans to take mm. it to Vanuatu, and we want to play it for people who do not necessarily have access to this kind of globalized contemporary music culture, um, uh, who right. will give us a better insight into whether these conceptions are shared by people who have little access well, to, uh, to In, in the a minute internet. left, I have, I want, does, ever, does anybody have songs about the blues? Do we have common songs about everybody singing the blues? 
Well, so we don't have any in the natural history of song discography yet, uh, but one of the th other things that we're doing sort of now that this paper's out is we're, we're working on expanding the discography to cover uh -huh. more contexts of singing, and, and a pretty commonly found uh, song type worldwide are laments, um, which is you know, a fancier <laughs> way to say the blues. <laughs> yes. Right? Um, so, so yeah, it would be really cool to study those you know, in, as we expand the data set. Thinking of that song where every day, first they rehearsed it and then and there's Okay, well, we'll, we'll have you back when we talk more about the blues. I want to thank both of you for taking time to talk <laughs> with us. Samuel Mayer, Research Associate in the Department of Psychology at uh, Music Lab at Harvard, and then Singh also at, uh, at Harvard University. Thank you both for taking time. Yeah, thanks a lot thanks, for having us. You're welcome. And we're going to take a break, and when we come back, everything you ever wanted to know about jellyfish. I know you do want to know about them, the good, the bad. And the cool, they are really cool. We'll tell you why someone really wants you to know that. Stay with us. We'll be right back after the break. This is Science Friday. I am Ira Plato. I never saw the jellyfish that stung me. I was snorkeling quietly, and then came the sharp pain in my shoulder and the welt that lasted a week. So when I now see a jellyfish, either as gooey blob washed up on the beach or swimming impulsively in an aquarium, I'm thinking, be careful. Yeah, there's still a bit of fear there in me, and I'm not alone. If you follow science news, maybe you've read the headlines like, the animal without a brain is taking over the oceans, or jellyfish are taking over the seas, and it might be too late to stop them. Needless to say, jellyfish are badly in need of some image repair, and my next guest, well, she's up to the challenge. In her new book, Spineless, science writer Julie Burwald has compiled some of the most fascinating and wonderful facts about jellyfish. That, who knew? Like how it can launch its stinging cell with an acceleration of five million types, five million times the force of gravity. Five million times the force of gravity makes the mantis shrimp look like a slow motion. And she explains why determining whether jellyfish are taking over the oceans is a lot more complicated than some of those dramatic headlines make it sound. In fact, it might not even matter. She joins me now, Julie Burwald, science writer and author of the new book, Spineless. Welcome to Science Friday. It is a privilege to be here. Thank you. Well, you're very welcome. Also joining us to discuss jellyfish science is Lucas Bratz, a postdoctoral research in the Institute for Oceans and Fisheries at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Welcome to Science Friday, Dr. Bratz. Thank you so much. All right, Julie, tell us. I read the book's fascinating book. It is everything you ever wanted to know about jellyfish, but it's also <laughs> your personal journey, is it not? It is, yeah. And it is. It's tell us why you decided to share it with us. You know, I um, I really wanted to tell a story that uh, where the the author wasn't sort of this mystery person telling you really smart things all the time, and I felt like connecting with my audience was was super important to me. Um, it may be just because I like write, reading memoir mm. and fiction a lot, but I wanted to make that connection with my reader. But you also seem to wanted to to debunk what we think about jellyfish. Well. I wanted to add more nuance to the conversation, okay. for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, whenever you start looking at something hard, it's always more interesting than than where you started before that. <laughs> and uh, and when I, every time I, I dug into the story of jellyfish, you know, any part of them, I would find these gems, just these science stories I really felt like hadn't been told. Yeah. And, and it was so fascinating. Do you think the media was misrepresenting? what we knew about jellyfish or what you were learning about jellyfish? 
I mean, yeah, the headlines blare sometimes, and that's part of, you know, part of their job is to get people to read the article. Um, and, you know, to tell you the truth, the science community is in a tough spot because throughout the 20th century, the way we studied the oceans was by pulling nets and winches and using, you know, research vessels with big, strong motors to go through the oceans. And that was yeah. a really good thing to do because the ocean is a very big place and we need to know more about it. But what happened along the way is we biased ourselves away from jellyfish because the things that come up in those nets are durable. They're hard. They have bones or our shells or something like that to allow them to come up in those nets. So our understanding of jellyfish for the 20th century is really poor and mm. we can't get that back. So then when we started seeing larger blooms in coastal places, you know, it's easy to say they're taking over. Um, but once you start digging into the science, again, like the nuance is really, really important. Yeah. And I'm not saying they're not taking over because in some places, there's definitely been a shift where jellyfish dominate ecosystems. But looking at those more local places might be the better way to go about it. Hmm. Uh, Lucas, I know you were part of a study that had scientists really divided over whether uh, what jellyfish populations were doing, as, as Julie talks about this kind of local. What, what, what was the debate over the data in that study? Well, certainly there's a lot of challenges when you try to look at the population dynamics of something like a jellyfish. As Julie mentioned, they've historically been ignored. Um, both because of the sampling equipment that we use, but also uh, because jellyfish populations naturally are highly variable based on the kind of life cycle that they have. So one year there'll be millions, the next year there'll be none, the next year there'll be thousands. So there's a lot of noise in the signal and it's difficult to extract an increase. Um, and so with this paucity of data around the world, um, at least scientifically, we had to start asking, well, should we include anecdotal data? Um, you know, marine scientists or lifeguards or fishers who've been in an area for decades know it really well, and they can attest to say, yes, for sure, I've seen an increase in jellyfish in my lifetime. But uh, a lot of scientists, you know, would reject that type of data if it's not, uh, you know, categorical and, and yeah. data, you know, scientifically driven. So um, there's some controversy over whether or not you can include these types of anecdotal data. Mm -hmm. Let me ask our, our listeners, do you think jellyfish get a bad rap? What uh, have you always wanted to know about them? Our phone lines are open, 844-724-8255. You can also tweet us uh, at Cy Fry. Um, so it, it's, uh, it, it, what, 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 what would you have to see then, Lucas, to be convinced that jellyfish are on the rise on the global scale? You say it happens in different places. And we know the oceans are warming, and, and there's new research showing that that's more hospitable to, to jellyfish populations. So what kind of data do you need? Right. So, you know, when I'm asked this question, are jellyfish increasing globally, I often respond with, well, what do you mean by a jellyfish? What do you mean by an increase? What do you mean by global? And over wow. what time frame? 
because you know you can define those things in many different ways there's no agreed upon definitions for a lot of those things and so you can come up with different definitions that'll lead you to a yes no or a maybe I think that um, the major conclusions we took away from our study was it's definitely not all jellyfish increasing in all places but we did see um, a signal sort of around the globe that says jellyfish definitely appear to be increasing in more places than they're decreasing and so we're seeing a lot of sort of sustained increases in different places around the world and a lot of those places are very disparate from each other so they don't appear to be sort of uh, directly connected and so you know we're seeing increases in jellyfish uh, off the coast of Asia uh, around Europe um, off the coast of Africa, even remote places like Hawaii and Antarctica. And so, um, you know, we start to question how many examples do we need before we can yeah. really say this is this is a global phenomenon. But, but you know, I'm fascinated that you, you glossed over this quickly, but I have to back up. You, you originally said, what's the definition of a jellyfish? Are you saying we really don't have a clear definition of what a jellyfish is? Uh, that's true. I mean, Julie covers this a bit in her book, um, and, and maybe she can speak to that. But, um, you know, these sort of gelatinous organisms that have uh, certain characteristics, um, once we dig into the evolution and the taxonomy and the phylogeny of these types of different organisms, we realize that many of them are quite distantly related on an evolutionary time scale. So, mm -hmm. you know, what we consider to be jellyfish might cover three different phyla. And so these distantly related organisms Lumping, lumping them into the same category can be problematic. Mm -hmm. Julie, tell us why. Now let's go to the, the, the interesting good news about jellyfish. Why <laughs> do you love them so much? What is so different? Tell, our, tell us why we should love them as much as you do. Yeah, so I mentioned that, you know, every time I sort of dug into a different element of jellyfish biology, I'd find these fascinating stories. And, like, a, one of my favorites was when I went to go visit these robotic jellyfish scientists in Woods Hole Oceanographic that were studying how jellyfish swim. And they were building robots to try to understand that. And what they learned was that, you know, that little peplum around the edge of the bell, the kind of floppy part that, yeah, yeah just looks yeah. beautiful when they move? That is actually, um, the that actually, it doesn't need any muscles, but it drives the animal forward in the water. And the way it does it is by creating a low pressure system on top of the jellyfish. So it, it actually, a jellyfish actually sucks itself through the water rather than pushes itself through the water. Mm -hmm. And once they started looking around the animal kingdom, they found out everything has these, they call them passive margins, these floppy, edges that goes through the water and and everything the reason for that is is just to suck to, to use that pull to, to well, move forward you have, and to, you have to push someplace so you can move some somewhere yeah, you ha I mean there's there got to be some, some sort of yeah some sort of pushing someplace but it's not yeah there is what you're saying there's pushing there is pushing but actually the pulling force is stronger than the pushing yeah. force so anyway it's it gave them this whole new perspective on how animals move and it turns out jellyfish are the most efficient movers out there, they use the least amount of energy to go a certain distance for a certain weight. Wow. So, and, yeah. And then you mentioned the stinging cell, which is like this biological treasure. And it's it's one of the most sophisticated things I'd ever learned about. It, it explodes, as you said, at five million times the acceleration of gravity. And that's the fastest motion in the animal kingdom that anyone has ever wow. discovered. Yeah. That is amazing. And, yeah, and it's even cooler, like, 
the trigger, there's a trigger on that cell. And the trigger is a lot like the hair cells in our ears. So it's like a clump of cilia that can detect um, sound or vibrations. And the, the trigger has to both hear and smell its prey before it will deploy. Wow. That, so it, it wow. Ha- yeah. That is yeah. fascinating. It's fascinating stuff. Well, let me go to the phones because the people are now really, we got their interest in Jim in okay. Houston. Houston, welcome to Science Friday. Hello. I, I was curious. I mean, I got stung when I was about 10 years old because I saw this gorgeous purple little thing in the water, a little, little pom-pom, and I picked it up, and as it slid through my fingers, it stung very much. But like the, the jellyfish that stung you, what can a jellyfish see or, or, or perceive and a what, with what sort of accuracy, and can it chase prey? And, and I, I was one time working in the Gulf, and I saw a Portuguese man-of-war as far as the eye could see. Mm. And, if a, and it, could, it can kill a human being, but does it do it any good? If, it were, if that jellyfish had killed you, could it have held on to you and, and consumed you, or was it just, are stings just purely random? Uh, good question. Julie? Um, okay, so lots of questions there. Yeah. Uh, you know, do they I, see? I, can they see? Can they hear? How do they pursue their prey? Yeah, so they have. You know, if you are in an aquarium and you're looking at a jellyfish, in between the scallops, sort of like you know how the edge of the bell is scallop, there's a little sense organ called a repellium or repellia in plural, and so they have they'll have like eight of them or or so more sometimes around the edge of the bell, and each one of those holds eye spots. It has a touch plate which can feel the motion, the current of the water, and also smell, sort of detect chemicals in the water. Um, and it has a balance sensor called like a, a statisist in there. So it's kind of like a little face, and they have many of them around the outside of the bell, and that is how they detect their environment to a large extent. Um, let's see, what other questions? Would they ever eat a human, Lucas? <laughs> Um, I don't well, think you so. Know, <laughs> no, I, um, that's the, definitely never been uh, the, documented before. You're just before, getting in their way, and they're just stinging you to get out of the way, or they're feeling yeah. threatened, I guess. What's going exactly. On. I mean, je- jellyfish do kill a lot of humans. Um, it's it's hard to say how many, because uh, the most dangerous jellyfish, the, the group of box jellies that can kill people that are located mostly in the South Pacific, are in a lot of countries where uh, you don't have to file a death certificate. So it's hard to trace mm-hmm. the records back. Of course, someone might just end up drowning as well. But, you know, a few estimates have put it at uh, more than 40 per year, which, uh, you know, is is four or five times the amount of uh, humans that are killed by sharks every year. So it's, it's certainly significant. Um, but, of course, in most of these cases, um, the jellyfish aren't actively hunting the humans. They're, um, they're doing their own thing, and you just humans just yeah. happen to contact them and get stung by their tentacles. This is Science Friday from PRI Public Radio International. Uh, talking about uh, jellyfish uh, this hour, a um, uh, lot, a lot of people want to know about it. But uh, l- let me ask you, Julie. Uh, they eat algae, right? They uh, no. What most do they of them eat? Are, plankton. Yeah. Plankton. Yeah. Mo- right. I, most of them are carnivorous, so they, they eat are. zooplankton. Yeah, they're 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 after the zooplankton generally, or and fish eggs. Um, but you know, there is a guy who was studying uh, jellyfish in, in Canada, and he's tried feeding them just different things out of his pantry, like oatmeal and peas, and they ate, they did eat them. So, so I think, that even pine needles, so I think they will sometimes ingest things that mm. 
you know, maybe they're not so specific for, but then they'll spit them out. And then there, but that's just one, that was a moon jelly. But then there's other studies that show that jellyfish will be selective. Um, other species will be selective and only go after a certain kind of zooplankton. So it's this kind of thing where we, when we group jellyfish into one big group, we're missing some of the complexity. Hmm. And, 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 and Lucas, what kind of strategies have people developed for dealing with too many jellyfish in certain parts of the world? There's been quite a few countermeasures that have been employed to, to deal with jellyfish populations. Um, in terms of tourism, they have um, sort of stinger nets that they'll set up, and they'll basically clear an area of jellyfish and deploy these these huge um, stinger nets. And Julie actually visited uh, a town in Spain where, where they've spent quite a bit of money trying to do this. Um, other industries have dealt with jellyfish in various ways. Um, you know, power plants that are affected by their intake pipes. They have different screens and bubble curtains and all kinds of things that they were trying, which aren't always e effective. Um, certainly, the aquaculture industry has been struggling with jellyfish blooms in re recent years. Um, you know, there's lots of sort of research going on in terms of how uh, they can control jellyfish populations in terms of, you know, using robots to, to kill them and drones to locate them and, and kill yeah. nets that yeah. they drag through the water. But none of them have been uh, really that effective. Um, I think really, you know, we're going to have a lot of difficulty controlling jellyfish populations. I think part of the immediate-term research that we should be focusing on might be a better prediction model where we can give people an early warning system that, hey, this might be a bad jellyfish month or jellyfish mm. year. Um, keep on the lookout instead of really you know, spending too much money trying to control their populations. We have, uh, we have a tweet coming in. It says, uh, are there any health benefits from the parts of jellyfish? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of talk going on about that right now. Um, Especially in Italy, there's a group studying nutraceutical, you know, effects, like what kind of uh, value jellyfish have. And it looks like they could be involved in wound healing. Um, when jellyfish, you know, they're often nipped at by fish, and when they heal, they don't actually mm. scar. Wow. And it, yeah, and there's some recent research showing that jellyfish can, gel tentacle extract, when it's applied to human cells, can actually stimulate cell growth and cell migration. So um, there's other evidence that jellyfish extract is super high in antioxidants, and some people have found some cancer-fighting cancer abilities. So yeah, that's a huge area right. of research. Don't go uh -huh. away. Can you stay with us a few more minutes? We're going to take a break and come back, because uh, we have so many questions from people who are interested in jellyfish. 844-724-8255. Uh, you can also tweet us at SciFry. Uh, talking with uh, Julie Burwald, author of Spineless. Great, bo great book if you want to know anything and everything about jellyfish. Also, Lucas Bratz. Stay with us. We'll be right back after this break. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. We're talking, of, we're diving into the ocean of jellyfish facts. I'll, yeah, I'll put it that way. With my guests, Julie Burwald, science writer, author of the new book Spineless, and Lucas Bratz of uh, the Institute for Oceans and Fisheries at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. We just have a few minutes left. I'm going to just cycle through a bunch of phone calls. People are asking all kinds of questions. Let them do the asking. I'm going to sit back a little bit. Maureen in Cape Cod. Hi, welcome to Science Friday. Hi, Ira. I enjoy your show very much. And um, I, too, was stung by a jellyfish that felt like an explosion, and it was a sea nettle. I have Parkinson's disease, and I have a tremor in my right arm, and I got stung by 
the jellyfish on my right shoulder, and it stung really badly for 24 hours. That entire 24-hour period, I did not have a tremor. Um, I wow. My neurologist thought that was pretty interesting. <laughs> There you go. There's a line of research. Thanks for sharing it, Maureen. Uh, so it's it sort of turned off her Parkinson's. It looks like it for a little bit. Uh, let's go to another phone call. Let's see if we can get as many in here. Let's go to James in uh, Americas, Georgia. Hi, James. Hey, Ara. Hey there. Um, I have a question. Um, are jellyfish immortal? Like, can they go on living? Hmm. Wow, Julie, what's the life of jellyfish? Um, so most jellyfish, jellyfish have a really cool and complex life cycle, and um, they they uh, they form a the the egg and the sperm form a little larvae called a planula that settles and becomes a polyp, and then that polyp goes through this really amazing stage called strobilation where it slices itself into like a stack of pancakes, and then each pancake bursts off the stack and becomes a little. Little jelly, little free swimming jellyfish called an ephyra, which matures into the medusa that you're probably familiar with. And there is, uh, there are a few species of jellyfish that are known to be able to go from the medusa backwards through their life cycle to the polyp stage, and then back forward again to the medusa and backwards to mm. the polyps. So those jellyfish have been named the immortal jellyfish, and mm -hmm. um, they are actually looking at them because not only does the animal go backwards, the cells in the animal go back to stem cells, which isn't something that we really know mm. much about. And I mean, they've been able to do it in culture to take fully baked adult, mm. you know, mature cells and go back to stem cells, but in animals, it's very unknown, and so they're looking at that now to see how the jellyfish does it and what we might be able to learn from it. Far out, as we used to say. Mm -hmm. Let's let's go to Matt in Wallingford, Connecticut. Hi, Matt. Hi. Uh, apologize for... Go ahead. ...coming in. Uh, so, I have uh, two questions. One was, uh, how... You just uh, talked about the quote-unquote immortal jellyfish. So, how is there any research so far in uh, how that immortal jellyfish goes back and back, quote-unquote, in its uh, developmental cycle and then forward again? Is that just the system stopping and hmm. then starting somehow going back? Yeah, and then doing something else. And also, uh, the other question that I was wondering was, uh, how do we uh, differentiate between different jellyfish? Because just if, let's say, I go swimming and I see a jellyfish or something, how would I, as a casual observer, differentiate the different types of jellyfish? And as a scientist, if, let's say, you're trying to... Uh, look at a specific, uh, let's say, the quote-unquote immortal jellyfish, how are you supposed to figure out just by looking at it that, yeah, it is the immortal jellyfish, and it's not uh, some other type mm. of jellyfish? All right, let me get an answer. Lucas, can you uh, tackle it? How do you know one jellyfish from the other? 
interesting. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, there's uh, thousands of species of jellyfish out there that have been identified and probably tens of thousands more that uh, we have yet to discover and identify. So um, it can be a challenge to identify the different ones. Uh, obviously, some jellyfish look very different from each other in terms of um, size. You know, the the giant jellyfish in Japan can uh, can get to be up to sort of, say, 500 pounds and, uh, and uh, you know, six feet across and then the immortal jellyfish that we've been talking about um, is usually isn't much bigger than sort of your pinky fingernail so there's certainly um, some jellyfish that look quite different than others but once you get closer uh, related between different species it can be a challenge but there are subtle differences that we use to mm. uh, identify one species from another and then of course DNA barcoding as well you can look at the the genome of the different jellyfish and that really gives you a clue to uh, whether or not they're different species and, and Regarding what, the um, like, immortal what, jellyfish, yeah, go ahead. I, I am running out of time. I'm sorry to <laughs> interrupt you. Uh, one quick question for, for Julie. You still have a jellyfish tank in your house? No, that wasn't very successful. No. Uh, it's kind of like having a carnival goldfish. It, <laughs> okay, it, it okay. Didn't make it too long. Um, yeah, but, yeah it, it's tough it's work, you know. It's very yeah, tough. you really have to have, a, yeah, I think, so, a pretty big filtration yeah, system. Saltwater before aquariums you. are tough. Yeah, I used to have yeah. a, a little reef in my house. I understand. I, I get it. There's Julie Burwald, science writer and author of the new book Spineless. You can find an excerpt of her new book on our website, along with some beautiful photos, at sciencefriday.com/jellyfish. Lucas Bratz, postdoctoral researcher in the Institute for Oceans and Fisheries, University of British Columbia in Vancouver. Thank you both for taking time to be with us today. Thank you. Thanks very much. Of course, you've heard that every snowflake is unique. Each one has its own special shape. That is true. But each flake is guaranteed to have six sides. You know those eight-sided snowflakes you see on holiday cards? Well, they might exist on a Hallmark store in a distant galaxy, but not here on Earth. And why is that? Well, the answer is crystals. Crystals or crystalline structures are not just in snowflakes. They're all around you. They're in diamonds and even chocolate. My next guest is all about crystals. He's a crystallographer, and he studies the chemistry of crystal structures. Jason Benedict, Associate Professor of Chemistry at the University of Buffalo in uh, Buffalo, my alma mater. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi, Ira. Thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here and to get to chat about the exciting science of crystals. It is. Let's start with the basics, because I don't think everybody knows what a crystal is. What defines a crystal? Give us a simple definition. Yeah, so uh, one way to think about it is you have basically atoms or molecules that are going to arrange themselves in a repeating pattern. You know, the most sim uh, simple case that everyone's probably pretty familiar with is something like salt or sodium chloride, where you have alternating layers of uh, sodium atoms and then, or sodium ions and uh, chlorine ions, and these extend in three, mm. you know, all three dimensions. It can get a little bit trickier there, but that's, that's really the idea is that it's a solid that's highly organized and, again, is sort of periodic or has a repeating structure. And so snowflakes all have six sides. Let's put that to rest, right? That's that, that's right. That's right. Uh, now, they can have some pretty complex uh, shapes, but the basic symmetry of a snowflake, at least a single crystal of a snowflake, mm. uh, needs to be sixfold. Mm -hmm. And every now and then you hear of scientists trying to create a, a new form of ice, which is a crystal, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this is something that's uh, you know important to think about when you're you're discussing crystals, and that is uh, you know certain molecules can actually adopt different crystal structures, and so uh, this is known as as polymorphism, where uh, the same molecule again can can organize itself into uh, really pretty different ways, and this can actually have a pretty dramatic impact on uh, properties. So this is important in things like uh, pharmaceuticals. Um, and uh, you know, well, really, a variety of other other things. But so, how do you get crystals to you know how to do this? How do you get a substance to to go into multiple crystal structures? Well, the two main uh, parameters that people uh, do are, are going to be temperature and pressure. So that is to say, if you you know apply an enormous amount of pressure, uh, chris- uh, the, the molecules that are in the crystal will actually rearrange themselves uh, to to potentially form a new crystal structure. And so, ice has a, a huge number of polymorphs that are generally accessed through yeah changing temperatures or changing pressures right, but when you when you press ice don't you melt it I mean, doesn't, how are you going yeah, so, to make so a new locally, crystal out of locally that, yeah. they can happen. A lot of times we're talking about uh, really pretty enormous pressures. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, many, many times the uh, you know the atmospheric pressure to get into some of these phases. But it can also be triggered by uh, temperature as well. So if you if you really cool ice down, yeah, this this uh, structure can uh, change into a a new crystal structure. And what's actually interesting about that is um, it doesn't necessarily need to have sixfold symmetry anymore. So you could actually wind up uh, with uh, crystals that, that that don't have six, that, that you know uh, typical six sides. Could have eight sides. Could have sure. Eight. So, yeah. so you're saying yeah. the natural form it's only six, but when you fool around with it, you can make it eight. Potentially, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, the, now the trick there, the, the caveat would be yeah. that you have to grow the crystal under those conditions, and to get this, these, you know, what we think of as these sort of these spindly or dendritic structures of snowflakes, you know, these are grown by crystals, uh, you know, uh, having. Uh, generally vapor phase, water molecules jump onto the, the crystal. It's a little trickier to do something like that, an experiment like that under ultra-high pressure, um, but you know, I suppose yeah. in principle it, uh, would be, well, it would be possible, and you could get those eight-sided But That's what you do, right? You look for ways to create novel crystal structures. You're a crystallographer. Yeah. And so so what's, uh, the, what's the useful stuff that comes out of what you do? Yeah, so, you know, the useful stuff, uh, you know, if we're just broadly, we can talk about some of the useful things that that crystals, uh, uh, you know, do. So they show up in all sorts of different technologies, uh, computing, energy harvesting, um, chemical separations and things like that. in chemistry, one very powerful aspect of crystals, and this is one reason that crystals are so near and dear to my heart, is that you can solve their stru- if you shine X-rays on it, and you know that that's a whole a whole another show. But we can use X-ray science uh, uh, to elucidate the structure, uh, get the crystal structure, and if we know what the structure is, we can actually go back and figure out what the shape of the atoms or the molecules were that made mm. that crystal, and so. For example, this is how people know the structure of DNA, right? People Rosalind actually grew crystals of DNA, shined x-rays on it, and solved the structure. And so for a chemist, this is an incredibly powerful tool to figure out what you made. This is Science Friday from PRI, Public Radio International, talking with uh, Jason Benedict uh, about uh, crystal growing. Now, I said at the top that uh, chocolate was a crystal. Did I make that up? Was that true? 
Uh, no, that's that's absolutely true. And so getting back to what I had said about polymorphism, yeah, so the cocoa butter in chocolate can actually adopt a wide variety of crystal structures depending on what temperature the the, the crystal at what temperature the crystals grew. And so that's the whole science of, of chocolate tempering is you want to grow just the right type of crystals in that chocolate to give it that characteristic snap and the shininess. So I do this stuff at home. <laughs> you know, the, it's a one very nice and tasty applications of crystals. And um, yeah, but, but wait, absolutely wait, wait, wait. what you, you're you, trying to do. Do you make chocolate at home a special way because you know how to make crystals? Uh, it, yeah. it certainly doesn't hurt, you know. I, I read up. I, I was like, hey, I and know so how to yeah. Do that. I forget exactly which polymorph it is, but that's exactly what chocolate tempering is: is trying to get all of the cocoa butter in that uh, chocolate to adopt one single phase. Mm, that's very delicious. Now I know that you run the U.S. National Crystal Growing Competition, where students try to grow the best crystal. Tell us how that happens. Is, is it all about the temperature? What, what do you have to do to grow a good crystal? What makes a, a blue ribbon crystal? Yeah, you know, it's it's uh, on 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 the face of it, it's pretty straightforward. But you know, if it was super easy, uh, uh, you know, there, it wouldn't be much of a competition. Um, so the we grow a substance called uh, alum, and again, this is uh, provided by some of our our uh, generous sponsors that include the American Crystallographic Association and uh, the NSF. And uh, p uh, there's basically two rules to the contest. The the kids start out with 100 grams of this material and they have five weeks to grow the crystal. And so how do you how do you turn basically 100 grams of powder into a big, giant crystal? Uh, you've probably seen some of the pictures uh, online. Well, this is pretty easy. Anyone who's grown rock candy or something like that has, has really sort of done this before, except you want more careful control. The idea is you're going to toss this powder into water, heat it up, and let, it, uh, let the water slowly evaporate. At some point, you're going to hit a point at which the, uh, the substance needs to precipitate out a solution. In this case, it crystallizes out. And uh, now there's oh. some finer details right. in terms of growing right. a seed crystal and whatnot. But but basically, uh, that's all it is. You you heat it up and let it cool. But there's a lot of stuff that can go wrong. I'll bet. Uh, if, I'll if bet. You, Especially when yeah. I do it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, give it, give it a shot. I mean, everyone shot. everyone should grow a crystal. I mean, that's why I do this We used to do that rock candy. And then when I was in school, everybody was growing rock candy on a string and a toothpick, you know, with the sugar yeah. water, that sort of thing. I know you you have a you had a cool crystal category there was some glowing and purple crystals there yeah, so this gets into the rules, right? I, I I love you know seeing what people can do when you you know take away the rules and you just let people go, and that's what the idea was with the cool crystal contest. I just basically said, hey, grow a cool crystal, and you know the only rule is when you send it in, I'm not going to be sending it back. <laughs> and uh, uh, so yeah, there was a there was a a, a teacher in a school district in western New York who wound up taking a yellow highlighter and cracking it open and pouring the juice of the highlighter into the crystallization container and yeah out popped this crystal and it's a colorless perfectly colorless crystal but if you shine the light on it it glows this really nice sort of turquoise blue and yeah there's lots of pictures of it uh, online on our Twitter feed and also on our, the crystal growing uh, website. 
Wow, and and well, that that's great stuff. I, you know, I wish we had more time to talk about it. We actually have photos of some of the crystals from the United States Crystal Growing Competition up on our website at sciencefriday.com uh, slash crystal. Thank you, James. Jason, for taking time to be with us today. It's fascinating hey, stuff. Good luck. You're very welcome, Ira. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Jason Benedict, Associate Professor of Chemistry at the State University of New York, or they call it University at Buffalo in Buffalo, New York. One last thing before we go. Look up next week because there's going to be a total lunar eclipse on January 31st. Not only that, it's an eclipse of a blue moon, the second full moon of the month, and the eclipse is going to happen just 27 hours after the moon hits its closest orbital point to the Earth called the perigee, meaning it'll be a supermoon. So you have a special super blue moon total eclipse trifecta in the early morning hours before sunrise next Wednesday, January 31st. Don't miss it. B.J. Liederman composed our theme music and uh, of, of course we're on every day is now Science Friday because we have all our social community and we're on Amazon Echo on Google Home. You can tweet us and Instagram us and Facebook. You can also email us scifry at sciencefriday.com Every day now is Science Friday. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. I'm Ira Flato in New York.